Good afternoon, and thanks so much for being with us on this sunny Tuesday afternoon. Well, as you just heard in the business report, inflation being discussed, but that the cost of food is continuing to climb, that despite overall inflation easing. We saw food prices grow by about 10.4% year over year in January. That's according to information from Statistics Canada. That's comparing with the overall annual inflation rate of 5.9% for the month. So we wanted to focus in on the groceries and the cost of groceries. Joining us to do that is Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Well, looking at these numbers and uh, pointing out uh, the federal agency, that Stats Canada, saying the price of meat saw uh, about a 7.3% bump, uh, I think, saying the cost of bakery products up 15.5%. What are your thoughts on the numbers we're still seeing when it comes to food prices? Well, I mean, it's uh, there's... There's no relief in sight, to be honest. Uh, I mean, uh, these are numbers that just came out for January, and we're expecting February numbers to be worse. Uh, I, I'm being very honest with you. I mean, th- there's lot, there are many headwinds impacting the food industry right now. And when you look at uh, this report today, uh, three, car- three categories are, are driving prices higher, dairy, vegetables, bakery, all of them are likely going to get more expensive over the next uh, couple of months. Uh, we were saying uh, to Canadians back in December when we released Canada's price report that it won't get, it won't be an easy winter, if you if you recall, and that's exactly what's going on right now. And what are your thoughts on what is causing this or what we can kind of link it to? And we've talked about this in the past, that when we look at the price of chicken and the price of chicken going up, we can look to avian flu that has wiped out a lot of flocks and it's a supply issue. But when we look at the other uh, price increases, again, price of some meats, price of bakery, uh, vegetables, what is what is causing that to continually go up? Well, I'd say, I mean, there are several factors impacting food prices. There are three major ones. Uh, I would say uh, the weather is certainly one with California impacting vegetable prices. Uh, the grain market is impacting bakery uh, and uh, and dairy. Uh, of course, we have supply management in Canada and, and dairy farmers are getting more for their milk, and uh, they're actually getting more uh, since February 1st. So that's why we're expecting a bump again in uh, in, in the March report. Uh, but the avian flu is certainly impacting poultry prices, egg prices. We're seeing it right now in, in a report. And that's due, again, that's due to climate change. I mean, avian flu is spreading like wildfire just because it's hard to contain. It's, it's actually even worse in the U.S. Uh, egg prices have gone up 60% in the U.S. Hmm. compared to Canada, which is uh, below 20%. So it's, it, the avian flu has been a problem in North America. And I know we've also talked in the past about the grocery stores themselves. We've seen the owners of grocery stores being called forward to explain pricing and to talk about how they come up with pricing. Uh, is it still your thought, or, or a lot of people do like to blame the grocery stores, saying they, they are bringing in record profits and perhaps they are taking advantage of this. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think they need to show up. 
That's it. I think that's the most important thing. I testified myself on December 5th. Uh, Loblaws was supposed to be there. Empire Sobeys uh, was supposed to be there. They sent in their CFOs, their chief uh, financial officers. I didn't see any CEOs there. The committee was disappointed, so I'm, 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 I'm happy that they're insisting for them to show up, but they need to show up. And, and the committee... They need to ask the right question. And the most important question I think we need to ask to grocers how much money they're making selling food, not cosmetics, not clothing, not precision drugs, food specifically. Nobody knows the answer. Because those things are all lumped together? Yeah. If you actually look at financial statements, it's almost impossible to know exactly how much profits are generated by the sales of, of food. And that's something that the morality of selling food is very different than, than, than when you're selling lipstick. I think everyone knows that. And, uh, but we need to get to the bottom of what's going on. And, of course, it's competition. If you look at what's going on in the U.S., for the first time in three years, our own food inflation rate is higher than in the U.S. now. And there's less competition in Canada. Is less competition helping Canadians or not helping Canadians? That would be the other question I would ask them, for sure. Right. And, and, and that is something that we look in at other industries as well, whether it's cell phones, uh, flying, you name it, uh, the idea of competition. Uh, but do you think yep. then, then if we look at the, the grocery scene in Canada, and, and obviously the grocers, are, maybe not obviously, but it appears that the grocers, they all knew what, know what the other grocers are doing and they know uh, what is a price for something that people will pay or people expect they, they have to pay. So, But it's interesting when, when you talk about that, we don't know exactly what the margin is if we're just specifically talking about food because we do often hear that grocery margins are low and it's kind of that that all-encompassing phrase exactly and so now is uh are grocers to blame for food inflation not necessarily uh because uh really when you talk to ingredient companies processing companies are all facing the same challenges it's it, it's a little bit simplistic to blame only grocers but at the same time, uh, you have to recognize that profit margins in Canada are double of what they are in the U.S., for one. So if you compare, say, Loblaw with Kroger, it's, uh, it's two to one, hmm. basically. So I would ask the question, so why is that? And what do you do with that money? And the other question I would ask CEOs is, why are you getting bonuses when gain consumers are struggling out there right now? I mean, all of these CEOs are getting more than a million dollars as a bonus. So what's going on here? Do you think there's any chance or any indication that we will get the answers to those questions? It depends uh, who asks, and it depends uh, what the intent is. Uh, when I actually was there on December 5th, I, I actually didn't see a committee uh, which was ready. And uh, I didn't see a committee asking really tough questions to CFOs. Uh, if this is a if 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 the committee is to make this a worthwhile experience for Canadians, they need to ask the right questions. Back in July 2020, all three CEOs were called in from by the finance committee to uh, ask questions about the hero pay cancellation. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, all three banners cancel hero pay programs all at the same time. So they were called in, and the session was a disaster. They didn't accomplish anything. They politicized the whole issue. Shouldn't happen this time.
Right. Well, we will wait and hopefully get answers to those questions. Uh, Sylvain, just something else you said as well, that uh, that it's not going to get better anytime soon. Is it? Uh, I, I saw it kind of summed up saying that it's not as though we're not expecting prices to decline, but, but maybe the best thing we can hope for at this point is that they're going to keep growing at a slower rate. Does that make sense? That would be correct. That is our reading. Yeah. I mean, to... Uh, to we shouldn't be expecting food prices to drop anytime soon. That's that's the new regime. And uh, 2022 is a hard year. Uh, and uh, so we're, we are expecting a very difficult first part of, the, of 2023, but things will get better probably starting in April or May. All right. So we will look forward to that, I think. Sylvain Charlebois, as always, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for being with us. Well, this is a case and it is out of Ontario, but it is something we've talked about before. In this case, a man has now been charged with murder after a shooting in Milton, Ontario. This was a shooting that took place this past weekend and the man claims that he was protecting his mother from an intruder who broke into their home. It's in relation to an alleged break and enter that happened inside this home where a man lives with his mother. Man's lawyer says his client is innocent and the charges should be dropped. Now, it was Sunday morning around 5 a.m. when police say a group of suspects approached this house on Gibson Crescent in Milton. Investigators believe four suspects were trying to break in and commit a robbery. But upon entering the home, police say the break-in suspects were confronted by the occupant of the home and a number of shots were fired. One of those break-in suspects was fatally shot and pronounced dead here at the scene. Police say when they arrived, Another one of the break and enter suspects and the 22-year-old occupant of the home were arrested. The lawyer for the 22-year-old man, Ali Mian, says his client should never have been charged. That report from Global News. Again, 22-year-old Ali Mian charged with one count of second-degree murder. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Edward Berlou, an Ontario lawyer who specializes in firearms-related cases. Edward, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Well, I... I think this needs to be talked about because there seems to be a lot of confusion at an early stage. And what is that confusion? And that report kind of tells us how things unfolded, at least what we're being told from police and from the lawyer for this 22-year-old man. Where do you think, uh, where is the confusion here? Well, the confusion is that we don't know right now whether this was a B&E or a home invasion. I really don't know the difference because one of the people who was not shot, who was involved as one of the four people who came into this house, he's charged with having illegal possession of a firearm. Now, you can bet that that's going to be a pistol. I think that's a pretty good bet. So here we have people, four people, I don't know their ages, and they're going into a house at 5 a.m., and they have guns, at least one gun. And then we hear shots were fired. That's plural. And then we have one shot. His lawyer says that Mr. Uh, Ali Ma mm-hmm. fired one shot and the guy died. Now, that's not enough to tell much of a tale, except that if this were Florida or any one of 39 states below the 49th parallel, 
he would have gotten a hero's button instead of a charge. So that's the problem that we're up against here. We're, you know, and when, when, it, when we look at the criminal code, it says that we can use similar force, equal force, to defend ourselves or our loved ones when we're with them. I think, I think that uh, Mr. Vick is right. It, Virk is right. This charge is not, should not be laid. But in the meantime, Mr. Mian is in jail, and they're going to try to hold him there till trial. It's going to be very difficult to get him out on bail right now. I'm having great difficulty getting people with ordinary, quote, ordinary firearms charges, regulatory charges, etc., as well as shooting. Not, no gang members, but ordinary people, gun goes off. It's hard to get them out on bail these days because of all the, the, the hoopla, properly so, of course, but all the concentration on release of suspects with firearms. I want to go back to something you mentioned, and that was the difference between, or we don't know at this point, was this a break and enter or was it a home invasion? I mean, is it too much oversimplifying it to to say a break and enter is when there aren't people home, there are no occupants in a home, a home invasion is when you break into someone's house knowing that there are people inside? Well, yeah, I guess that is the difference, but you're right, that is the difference. But the thing is, at five in the morning, you're going to figure people are at home. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're not out shopping on a Sunday morning at 5 a.m. And uh, so that's pretty much what you would you would go for. And also then you're going to be able to get things properly, uh, you know, like be able to say, okay, force you to open the safe, force you to give me, you know, find your passport, give it to me. Don't, passports are a big thing that people traffic in. Um, and that's all we know. But I have to say one thing right now. The lawyer for Mr. Mian should never have said what his client did. You never make the, any admission like that in a media sense. My client did something. My client shot a gun. Why do you say that? Shouldn't. And was do you think, and again, this is, I, I suppose, speculating on why he would have done that, but in that statement, he says, my 22-year-old client is a registered firearm owner and used his gun legally against an armed intruder. Was it the to get that point out there that this wasn't somebody who had an illegal firearm, this wasn't somebody who was doing anything illegal in having a gun in his house, this was a registered owner? Well, I think that that's a good thing to say, but I, I'll put you another way. We don't know the proximity of these people. Okay. We don't know if they were, you know, front of the house and back of the house shooting at each other or not shooting at each other or whether a gun was brandished, but not shot or whether there was a struggle and the gun went off during the struggle. We don't know. We don't know who shot what. That's why I'm saying right now we have a lot of confusion, but, and, and, and we don't know when the gun, uh, when Mr. Meehan's gun was removed from the safe storage, because that doesn't, you just don't click your fingers and it comes out. You see, you, you have to have it stored and, and, and the ammunition separate before you get it together to meet a challenge within your own home.
Right. And and yes. And so if he was, in fact, following all of the laws that go with being a registered gun owner, and, and you're right, we don't know how things unfolded, but you would make the presumption he had the time to go get his gun out of a safe, get ammunition, load that gun and protect himself. Uh, to go back to something else you said that, though, and comparing it to, to maybe some other jurisdictions, but specifically in Canada, uh, the criminal code, and I know that there's been um, edits to it, or there's been, there's been, uh, the code has changed a bit over the years, but but it's not it's not called self-defense, but it is, like you said. So in Canada, what is the actual law when if you believe on reasonable grounds that force is being used against you? Well, then you can use an equal uh, you can use an equal compatible force back against that. You know, like if somebody slaps you in the face, you can't stab him, you can't shoot him, you can't hit him with a hammer. But by George, if they're you know, we, we have to look at it in that way. And we also have to weigh it against what's called the wheel of force, which is what the police use. You see, so, and the police work like this. Here's, here's one of the things the police do. This is how they're trained. Okay. If I'm within 10 feet of you and I've got a screwdriver in my hands and I, and I'm coming at you and you're the police officer, you are justified in drawing your handgun and shooting me at the center of mass, which is my heart. And, then stopping me or killing me. And that is the law of the police. And that is how they're judged. And they have no greater power of self-defense than the ordinary citizen, except that they're already armed and they're trained. Right. So so d- does that, what is the difference then between that other than, than what you just said, that they're, they're already armed, they're their uh, firearm will be on them is is that not also when we say a person who is unlawfully assaulted is allowed to to uh, fight back using that that equal amount of force would that not be if someone is in your house with a gun that you could protect yourself with a gun yeah that's what i'm saying absolutely absolutely but when when you start looking at culpability then we have to know how the shot was fired, who fired the shot, what was the circumstances. Was it, was, was, and the other thing that we don't know about um, is, is how the perpetrator who was shot, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm supposing going by what we're seeing right now, I don't know the name of the person, um, was he a person with a weapon or not with a weapon? Was it somebody else with a weapon and not him? There's, there's so much to be to be delved into here. And, uh, you know, I mean, and, and that's all important. We don't know. And when we talk about that as well, is it then the timing that seems a bit uh, off in that maybe there is the justification for a charge in this case, we don't know, but that the charge was laid so quickly after this happened uh, this morning or the, after this happened, I, I guess, on uh, Sunday morning, that it was laid so quickly. Uh, is it, does it suggest that maybe there wasn't a thorough investigation or maybe there could be more information that needs to be gathered before that decision is made? Well, I think there is more information because right now, as we're talking, um, from what I gather, forensic teams, police forensic teams, are in the house furthering the investigation. So not all the answers are there. 
you see. They're not all there right now. And forensic is finding out. So what will forensic do? Forensic is going to look at uh, where the body fell, where, where, uh, where there may be gunpowder residue, where there may be terrible thing to say, blood spatter from the wound. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to look at many things, going to see what's broken, what, what was where, all the objects that relate to the, the shooting or shootings. You see, that's the point. And we don't know exactly what went on. And forensic will try to rebuild and put it all together. That's what their job is. All right. Well, we will be watching to see what happens in this case. Edward, thank you so much once again for coming on to talking about this and for your point of view. I appreciate it. Okay. Anytime, especially as this develops. Thank you. Air Canada has announced it has launched digital identification. This is the first airline in Canada that has approval to offer customers what it is calling the safety and convenience of a new option that uses facial recognition technology to confirm identification. So a pilot project is now underway and the digital identification is available for travellers that are departing from YVR, boarding select flights to Winnipeg, as well as eligible customers who are entering the Air Canada Cafe at Toronto Pearson International Airport, and they are planning to expand this digital identification as well. Many saying that it will speed things up and make it more efficient, but are there concerns about privacy? Well, joining us on the line to talk more about this is Anne Kavukian, Executive Director, Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre at Toronto Metropolitan University. Anne, great to have you back on the program. A pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Uh, what are your thoughts on this expansion or the bringing in of this facial recognition program? So first of all, I want to distinguish between digital identification and facial recognition because there's all kinds of digital identification that is not facial recognition and is extremely problematic and could lead easily to people assuming your identity and taking over things. Now, what Air Canada is doing what is facial recognition. There are two types of facial recognition, one-to-one and one-to-many. Let me explain this. One-to-many is my face is compared to thousands, hundreds of thousands of other facial images to see if there's a comparison, a match. That is highly problematic from a privacy and security perspective. Don't go there. One-to-one, on the other hand, is my face being matched to an image that I have sent to Air Canada, a picture of me. So I go to the uh, to the Air Canada counter. Um, I go in front of the screen. There, it's loaded with a picture of me. When I come up, it compares the picture of me to me standing there in front of it, one to one facial recognition. That method of identification is actually can be very secure and, and privacy protective. But you have to ensure that all kinds of measures are in place, that third parties can't approximate this data. Right. Okay. And and from what we understand then in this scenario, it sounds like it's the one-to-one facial yes. recognition, right? Yes. And I should add, Nexus did that a number of years ago. So if you go into the United States and you have a Nexus pass, the way you get in very quickly, instead of going to all the border line crossings, you go to the screen, um, you put in your name, your image comes up, you show your face, there's a comparison. If you're good, then you're good to go. 
it's it's quite easy. Right. And I think in that case, too, don't you also, I should know this because I've, I think I've done it a million times, but now I'm forgetting. <laughs> don't you also put your fingerprints on the scanner? No, not not uh, with the Nexus one. Okay. All right. And and are there any concerns then with that? Or, or is that something where they are identifying you? Yes, it's a security uh, part of security to get you through, make sure you are who you are. And, and but do you, is there any concern there about where your where your information goes? Joe, what I would do if I was going to subscribe to this, I would ask your Canada to tell me exactly where does my facial image reside that's going to be matched to my live image when I appear at the um, uh, counter. Uh, Who else can gain access to my facial image? The answer there should be no one else. The only person who should be able to um, get your facial image going on the screen is you and your face attempting to match it. That's it. No one else should have access to this. These are the questions I would pose to Air Canada because they're very important. If you ever allow unauthorized third parties to access your facial images, the sky's the limit in terms of the, the potential privacy and security harms that could arise. But it sounds like they're doing the one-to-one comparison from, from what you've described, which tends to be quite secure and privacy protective because theoretically no one else can gain access to it other than you when you present your face at the airport. But all of this has to be outlined. That's why I would ask all these questions. Yeah, and one of the other things that that struck me, and this was in the release that was put out about this new program and the pilot project that is underway, uh, saying that digital identification is also, it says it's a single enrollment feature on the Air Canada app, and that biometric data is encrypted and stored only on the customer's mobile phone. Customers must provide additional consent for that data to be used day of travel, and it will only be retained for up to 36 hours, subject to Air Canada as rigorous privacy and security standards. Does that give you any more kind of peace of mind? It actually does give me some more peace of mind because they indicate that no one else can gain access to it. It will only be retained for a set period of time and that only the individual can get everything going because it's on their mobile device. I think that's what was said. So those are very positive moves. But what I would caution Air Canada, I would tell Air Canada Don't call it digital identification. Hmm. Call it facial recognition. Because there's so many other types of digital identification. There are highly insecure, highly accessible to hackers and unauthorized third parties. That's the last thing you want associated with the Air Canada you know, face-to-face facial recognition. Well, it made me think when you were talking about that as well, and I think you actually came on the show when we talked about uh, Cadillac Fairview, the mall where yes. we're in the tower above it, uh, when they were doing that to the to the boards, to the digital yep. maps, without telling people, and then said, oh, okay. well, don't worry about it. We didn't store it, and, and we've stopped doing it. But that was a oh, huge yeah, concern. trust us. <laughs> Just trust us. We didn't tell you, but you can believe what we're saying. That's it. You have to be so upfront. And that's why I'm glad Air Canada is leading uh, forward with a lot of information. But I would ask for some more information. Is the data destroyed after a set period of time? Does, is there any possibility for third parties like law enforcement to gain access to my data? Those are questions that have to be answered.
this as well, the pilot project, uh, they said to customers who don't want to utilize, and again, they're calling it digital identification in yeah. this, say they may simply board as they currently do by presenting the boarding pass, government issued ID or manual check for processing. Uh, that's being offered now, though. But do you think that we are headed or going that it is going to be more this type of technology when we are doing things like boarding airplanes? I I suspect that's the case. And I'm not suggesting that it is necessarily a negative thing. As I said, that the Nexus Pass facilitates entry into the United States dramatically. It makes it so much easier. And it's all positive consent, one-to-one facial recognition. That's it. So if Air Canada goes to great lengths to ensure the privacy and security of the data, ensures that it is, well, these are the questions I don't know. How long will they retain it? Will it be deleted securely afterwards? You know, these are all questions that have to be answered. And they can be answered, of course. So if all the questions are answered in a privacy-positive way, which it sounds like they're going in that direction, this could be a real positive tool for for customers, for, you know, people who are travelers. And, you know, the airports are like these. Mm. <laughs> they're crazy. Oh, yes. Uh- but, but Air Canada has to speak out about all of this. Well, and that was my other, it's one thing I think that if you're and your center are looking for these answers, are these the kind of questions that, that passengers, uh, normal, just customers yeah. of an airline can ask and can expect to get response? Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, all customers, all travelers on Air Canada should be asking these questions if they are considering using the facial recognition. They have every right to know what's going to happen with my image what happens with my biometric data, the facial image that they have? That is your most sensitive data is your biometrics that label you perfectly. And it can be used in the, in the unauthorized hands of third parties. It can be a real harm. So passengers should be asking all these questions. And who would passengers ask? Because my guess is if you ask the person who's taking the scan or at the yeah, desk, no. they would just look at you and go, I don't know. How would I know that? I would, you've got to, I would think you have to do it by email. Email the, um, the customer care people at Air Canada. I'm not sure who the person would be, but they'll identify it and um, put these questions to them very straightforward. All right. Well, uh, good advice. And I'm glad to hear that uh, you're saying that there is some potential that there is value here and that can be done in a way that's not going to completely uh, put us and make us vulnerable. And as always, thank you so much for joining us and for being on the show. It's always my pleasure, Jill. Thank you.